This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How's the climate? Um, I want to talk about the weather, actually, today. Did anyone else get oh, woken up at 3 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah, that was full on. I think Very. it was like hail. It was all happening. It was all happening. It was great. Dr. Ray's in the studio. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Uh, I am, but, you know, I had put some things outside to dry because it was warm weather yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair <laughs> And call. at about 3.30, I woke up and went, oh, that strategy failed. Yeah. Um, I fortunately accidentally left my stuff in the washing machine and forgot to do that. But then later, I was like, yeah, right so on. Good I stuff. I forgot on purpose. <laughs> yeah. How clever. Yeah, no, the weather. <laughs> uh, and the virally infected Dr. Laura. Always. <laughs> yeah, Great we're all scared in the studio because she is a virologist or immunologist. Either way, Either lots way. of viruses hanging around her, her lab area, and she comes in and just says, I'm so infected. <laughs> But can I point out that the safest place to be would be in a research institute. It's very clean. It's in the real world that I get scared. <laughs> yeah, right. You spend too much time on planes. Liv's doing our Twitter feed today, folks, so um, you can, you know, if you don't want to hear our voices, you can just uh, read hers. Um, but we have a big hour. We've got a couple of uh, guests uh, we're going to speak to shortly. But we wanted to start off with our normal news segment, but today we thought we would begin by talking about some of the big news during the week. And we thought it was going to be the, the new Mars lander, but then... Some bugger in China decided to use CRISPR to edit a baby's genome, which um, we thought we should talk about. So, uh, Dr. Linden, you, you brought this in. You wanted to talk about well, this. Well, I brought this deal. in, Dr. Shane, because I just followed on Twitter. Actually, it was Dr. Crystal on mm. Twitter who said, everybody, look, stop talking about Mars. That's not the news this week. <laughs> it's this. It's CRISPR. It's the yep. fact that a Professor Her in China has edited the genes... Of mm. babies, and that's where my knowledge <laughs> ends, unfortunately. So I thought, let's bring it to the radio, yep. and hopefully, Dr. Laura can explain to me what exactly that means yeah, and why us, it's such a big deal. Give us the lowdown. <laughs> so, CRISPR, if you haven't heard of it, you're under a rock. Um, of course, this is a really. <laughs> oh, so, um, sorry, three people. <laughs> sorry, three people who've been think under of, a rock. You know, crispy MMs. But anyway. Well, I think of potato chips. <laughs> and go. I've said that in talks. When people talk about CRISPR, I always think of potato chips. So, what does it stand for? Clustering palindromic repeats. Do you never need to know? Aww. All you need to think of it is that something that will target DNA. There's molecular scissors in there as well. You you can design a sequence to bind to a specific gene that you care about that you want to delete. And then molecular scissors. There's an enzyme called Cas9. Sometimes you might hear of this being called CRISPR-Cas9. Cas9 will cut that gene out. And any like decent biomedical researcher is using it these days to edit their cells and mice. Can, but mm. in humans, didn't see this coming. You know, this soon. Very very surprising. Can, can you also, you said you can cut genes out. Can you put genes in? Yes. Too? Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So you cut a bit out and chuck a bit in. Yeah, or or cut, cut a bit out you don't want. You just cut a bit out and what, then there's a gap? or You cut a bit out and then the DNA will recombine. Oh. And, and this is not something, I mean, we've been able to do this sort of stuff before, but my understanding is the, the, the coolness of CRISPR is that it's super cheap, yep. it's super fast, and, and it's also super precise. Yeah, and it's super that, precise. Yep. Well, but we... we in the lab, we're saying it's super precise, right, right. but in human embryos, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, this is a huge question. It's, so it's been used a lot. It's been used for crops for a while. You use it in research with mice and yeah. other types of animals and all, you know, lots of different things. And on non-viable embryos. But, of course, this, you know, in this instance, a gene was edited, the embryo was implanted, carried to full term, and now we have two twins born in China called Lulu and yeah. Nana. 
So um, one of the the big things here, though, that's different is the idea that these two children would presumably or possibly pass this modification on to their children. So this becomes the new human genome. Yeah, exactly. Because there have been treatments on adults with CRISPR experimentally, haven't there? Mm. Mm. I'm not sure, sure about that. Well, uh, yeah, actually, I think there was. There was one. No, University of Pennsylvania led a small study on crippled CCR5 and HIV-affected adults using a technique similar to... Mm. But getting back to this story, we should we should point out straight away is that we're not really talking about designer babies, even though CRISPR could be used to edit certain genes to create designer babies. Mm. But, of course, this was, you know, the the sort of hope for CRISPR is to try and, you know, get rid of genetically genetic diseases. So yeah. that's the hope yeah. for mm-hmm. CRISPR. But in this instance, um, the father of these two daughters, he was HIV infected, and the gene that was specifically edited here was CCR5. And the hope is that by genetically modifying this gene, this would prevent um, because the chance that these children would get HIV Because CCR5 is the gene that the HIV virus uses to, to, to kind yeah. of propagate. And we were saying just before we kind of went on air, if you were going to pick a gene, CCR5 is a pretty good one because it's a really well studied it's really well studied gene and also there were individuals that lack CCR5 as well and of course the first man who was ever cured of HIV Timothy Brown that was because he had a bone mm. marrow transplant yeah. lacking that CCR5 gene so in, I'm not not condoning this and we can get into the ethics of it getting fir- you know going forward but if you're going to target a gene CCR5 is not a bad gene to edit moving while we're, forward while we're talking about that gene are there any downsides from not having that gene well, potentially. I mean, it's, it's a receptor well, that's involved for immune cells. So, well, yeah. So, but is I, I mean, what I uh, I'd read and what I was trying to understand is there was a comment that having that gene helps defend the immune system against West Nile? Yeah, so there's a lot of receptors in the immune system, which, of course, are important for other diseases, but there's also a lot of overlap as well. So, um, but, but there are individuals out there who lack CCR5. And, even and they live yeah. a life, a full yeah. life. But, yeah. of course, now we've gone in and we've edited this gene what might the off-target effects be? And this is the huge question. Mm-hmm. So, you know you've, you've, you know, you've thrown in CRISPR, which is able to edit CCR5, but might it be binding something that you don't know? Of course, as Shane said, it's being passed on to the next generation. And so, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's scary stuff. Mm. And the other thing that I think people found quite scary about this study is that it was kind of done rogue rogue it was rogue i know that there are there is a lot of secrecy sometimes in some gene editing research that's done i read some quotes from experts across australia that said oh look that happens sometimes things have to be kept secret until the paper is published blah 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 but this guy there was no paper but, there but was even, nothing but even, i have to say even, so the rogue stuff for me i always find it interesting when the scientific community so that arcs up a bit about that or any community because so i i recall a certain individual um doing some work on himself with regards to stomach ulcers that led to a nobel prize oh yeah we award. enjoyed that one yeah and, that, and, and so that one was okay <laughs> like that complete breach of all ethical standards that we abide by but that one will earn a nobel yeah but then when we talk about this oh hang on hang on it wasn't published. We don't like that. I, I think there's, there's got to be some common ground there okay. amongst okay. us. It's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, and of course the president presidents of we're coming up to the 40th birthday of Louise Brown, the first IVF mm. baby, and there was absolute panic, you know, around that time. So mm. will we look back on this in 40 years' time and where CRISPR would be commonplace and people might yeah. be okay about it? Mm-hmm. But it's so unusual for somebody to get up at a con- at a congress oh, and just and just, and just present it. It's a guy that had gone on leave from his academic institution. I think, you know. 
one problem for many scientists is that it was not peer-reviewed by other scientists. Um, there's, the paper hasn't come out yet where this has been published. It seems mm. very ad hoc and cowboy that your own institution isn't behind you. Mm. This guy had gone on leave from his university to do this work you know, yeah. unpaid from his institution. About nine months previously. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah. Suspicious, but, Dr. Ray? But he was not an outsider of the community. Everything within what was approved in the ethical guidelines, doing things in animals, on non-viable embryos. He'd already presented that work. Like he's, yeah. he, he's, he was a you know, fairly prestigious researcher yeah. in his field. So it, it's interesting. You, you, you could argue that had he not taken this approach, he wouldn't have been able to do this work full stop, which I think is probably yeah. true. So, you know, he's obviously thought that. But it, it reminded me once long ago um, when we, we've had a number of guests on this, we were talking about um, the modification of mosquitoes so that they couldn't carry malaria. And I remember um, when we had one of these guests on, I asked a question which threw them. And that was, so what does mosquitoes not being able to carry malaria do to non-human populations in the ecosystem? And they go, I don't know that's not what we're working on. I'm like, how can that not be what you're working on? How can, how can that not be factored in to the release of these mosquitoes? Because, you know, nature's about balance and there are, there are viruses around in, in many regards to maintain that balance. It's not their purpose, but that's what they do. And if you don't think about those things, you get yourself in trouble real quick and you end up using golf golf clubs to deal with cane toads. But, you know, CRISPR is like a bigger adventure in that, that whole game where... You know, even when we, we start looking at what the potential changes are down down the line for, you know, the children's children's children and what this looks like. Well, if you if you don't even know what it is in this generation, then you add genetic errors to the next generation, what does that look like? It's it's hard to Yeah. It's hard to get your head around. And if, you know, if this guy's kind of gone under the radar and been able to do this, and apparently it's not just these twins, there's another pregnancy mm. on the way, you know, how are you going to start to regulate what's being edited? Mm. Mm. It's one of those things where I think we've and we've seen this in a few areas, especially around the use of stem cells and stem cell therapies, and and the initial work on you know embryonic stem cells and so forth and what that looked like, as opposed to um, the other ones, pluripotent stem cells. Um, mix in my biology but that that real push from the community no you're not going to be using embryos for this work and and it pushed the scientific community into another direction which turned out to be really really great Mm -hmm. and CRISPR I think is one of those areas where I suspect the 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 ethical pushback from the community as yet has not really jumped into the fray so what do you think this is going to do then because some of the commentary I've read has said well you know this might be a really great step forward for CRISPR research but there's been so much outcry about the way it's done that it, it could send us backwards and we'll have to jump through so many more hoops to, to step forward what do you think mm-hmm. I know Shane said Jenny's out the bottle now yeah I, I think it is and I think the other thing is there, there are a number of countries in the world that will follow certain processes and procedures and, and abide by those but there, there are many more countries you in won't. the world that won't mm. and the idea that you know just because you know, a few major publishing houses and that seem to have control over the Western world's scientific community and the way it operates, um, that does not mean that that will happen in other other countries at all. And I think, you know, the problem is it's cheap, it's easy, relatively easy, and it's not like we're building nuclear bombs here. You can actually, you know, researchers can work out how to do this pretty quickly. Yeah, and if it comes down to, you know, know, getting rid of, you know, terrible genetic disorders... Mm. Well, the... It also depends on the outcome. There was uh, one of the pioneers at CRISPR, the one at Harvard, I think Church, was interviewed by science, and they said, well, would you... He said, well, let's see what he's actually done and published first before we come to conclusions, but 
Then they asked, would you have gone about it this way? And he said, no. The interesting thing was he said, what about the outcome? And Dr. Laura already mentioned the celebrating the 40th anniversary of the first IVF baby. He said, well, it depends if it's that outcome or the... Then he gave a name of a person who was the first person to die in testing of gene therapy. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. Uh, and so it depends on which one. I mean, yeah. something that's really scary is that so, even the people who have, you know, the first sort of discoverers of CRISPR or scientists who use CRISPR every day, they don't understand the risks. So how are parents meant to understand the risks? And that's a really scary point. Yeah. And, and, and so going back to something, I think I might have misspoke. Um, there's a similar technology, and Dr. Laura can tell me, because I don't know what it means, zinc finger technology where there's a researcher in Pennsylvania who had used that on adults to remove the CCR5 gene on HIV-infected adults. But I, I don't think that's, that, mm. that has nearly the implications because they were doing working on adults. It was interesting because they interviewed that person and said, what did you think about what the professor yeah. in China has done? And he went off the handle and said, no, no, that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've read in a lot, of, a lot of things as well. General professors in other areas saying this is kind of scary s- stuff, despite the potential positives and mm. you know yeah. what it could lead to yeah look it's, it's an interesting area i mean for me it comes back to a, a simple issue with the scientific community at the moment and that is the sort of solo 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 of people's fields so people getting into too narrow a field of study and not being able to see outside of that and i think in areas like CRISPR, where really every single scientist should have at least done a couple of semesters of philosophy in their undergraduate studies and this is a really important point that they need to understand the changes in the scientific community that have happened over centuries and how some of those have been risky and problematic and you know good minds and and well thought out gets you through but if you are so siloed into just this one little problem it's hard to see that and i think the more we educate people more laterally the better off we'll be in terms of the way we view these sorts of problems because there is a big ethical dimension and that has to be the responsibility of scientists as well as the broader community. So, anyway, that's my two cents worth. <laughs> there we go. Is that okay, Lyndon? Yeah, I've we'll learned a lot. <laughs> that was the whole point. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> All right. We can, we can talk a bit about the, the Mars stuff and that later in the show, but uh, we're going to go to a break, folks, and uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking on the phone uh, to a researcher. Oh, some cool stuff. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, a researcher from... Um, uh, at the uh, university out in, uh, well, Latrobe University, but uh, he's in Bendigo, so we're doing that one by phone. It'll be cool. Hang in there, you're listening to Triple R. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. Um, we are on with our next guest in a second. He is on the phone. Hopefully, we have Dr. Jim Radford. Jim, are you there? Yeah, good morning. Great to be on your program. Good morning. Now, uh, just to announce you more formally, you're the Principal Research Fellow in the Research Centre for Future Landscapes in the Department of Ecology, Environment and Evolution in the School of Life Sciences at La Trobe Uni. Did I miss anything? No, no, that sounds like a mouthful when you say it like that. <laughs> there we go. Now, uh, we wanted to have a chat to you because you've been looking at how um, some of the introduced species, like the red fox and the feral cat, have been affecting our, our local mammals. Can you give us an idea first of how our mammals are doing overall, like in terms of extinction rates and so forth? Um, where, where do we stand? Uh, we stand in an abysmal situation. So, as is, um, you may or may not know, that Australia basically has the worst record of, of mammal extinctions of any country in the world over the last uh, 200 and 
200 years or so, basically, since European uh, colonisation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've lost, I think the current count is about 38 species and seven subspecies um, of mammals uh, from uh, mainland and from islands in that time at a, at a pretty decent rate, pretty consistent rate of about one to two uh, taxa per decade. So oh. we sometimes think that you know, all of the extinctions occurred way back when, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, when ex- expansion of agriculture moved across the country or introduced predators, but it's actually pretty steady. It's one to two species per decade. So it's, it's a current and ongoing issue. Mm. And, and Jim, just with regards to that, I mean, what's the primary sort of cause of the majority of them? Is it deforestation? Is it, you know, introduced species? I mean, what, yeah. what's leading, the, leading that? Well, yeah, well, it is usually a combination of factors. So things like habitat loss through, um, mainly through uh, um, agriculture and, and habitat clearing for, for those sorts of things. Um, clearly changed fire regimes in a lot of a lot of areas, uh, particularly in the north and through central Australia, has had, a, had an impact. Um, more and more so, climate change is becoming a factor. But the introduction of... Uh, foxes and cats has been a primary factor. We think in at least 25 of those extinctions mm-hmm. um, and is an is a factor in the ongoing decline, both in terms of contraction of range and decrease in the abundance of many, many uh, mammals. Mm. Now, when, when we talk about the, the red fox and the feral cat, um, and you've been assessing which of these sort of 246 Australian terrestrial species you've been looking at are susceptible to predation by them? How do you go about doing that? How do you how do you know or how do you determine susceptibility? Yeah. I can imagine some of them are predated on by them, but how do you know that some are more susceptible than others? Yeah, so this was research that was has been done under the Threatened Species Recovery Hub through, mm-hmm. from the uh, National Environmental Science Program, um, and so we we. We took a slightly different approach to uh, how this has been tried before. So in the past, people have looked at uh, life history and ecology traits, so looking at the size of the species, where it's found and, and, and where, it, where it forages and um, whether it's up on the ground or in the... Um, on the ground or in trees and that sort of thing. So we took a slightly different approach. We firstly looked at all of the evidence from... Um, uh, basically from studies, experiments, natural experiments and the like, where species occurred with and without uh, foxes and cats. So mm-hmm. that might be on, on offshore islands or it might be through reintroduction in fenced areas or through um, effective landscape-scale predator control programs that, that are run by, generally by government uh, agencies. We looked at the population-level responses of, of uh, different species uh, to the presence and absence of, of foxes and, and, and gained a, an insight from the actual population level response from that information. Where we didn't have that information, um, where it wasn't in published papers or even the grey literature, we went to and involved the government agencies and experts who had been involved in many of these programs and asked them what do they think uh, the, the species responses were and which ones are more susceptible or not to uh, cats and or fox. And we tried to do it separately for foxes and for cats because some species or many species have different sort of responses to those two predators so it's not they're not they're not exactly the same thing um and then where we failed that and we didn't have any information from that then we sort of reverted back to the life history traits and that sort of thing but we also looked at historical records um in terms of the coincidence of species um Decline and their and their loss from the landscape that was coincident with the spread of foxes and cats um, into those areas, which again they didn't come at the same time. In many areas, fox, uh, cats predated foxes and foxes came later. So you can sort of make some inference, and that's that's for the 
for the extinct species, we, that's mostly based on that sort of evidence, mm. as well as looking at um, dietary records and things like that and, and uh, how often um, those individual species are found in, in um, scats and, and gut analysis of, of foxes and cats. So a range of different evidence bases, so trying to look at that, multiple lines of evidence um, to, to bring a, a comprehensive picture together for, for all of Australia's terrestrial mammals, excluding bats. We didn't look at bats, I'm afraid. Right. Um, yeah. So this is Dr. Ray. So after all that work, um, is the outcome the naive thing where I'm going to think slow, small mammals that are easy to get out of burrows are the things that got extinct first or what's the what, what, what's the types of mammals that have actually are really susceptible or have been extinct from foxes and cats yeah so some of it is obvious so ground dwelling species are more susceptible than than uh, arboreal species or species that, that live partly or, or totally in trees um clearly cats and foxes um <laughs> don't climb trees all that often and aren't very good at uh um, uh, hunting up there. Um, there's the whole critical weight range thing. So there is a there is a, uh, a preferred size of animal. So between anything that's over about half a kilogram up to about three and a half kilograms, maybe five kilograms for foxes, are uh, more susceptible to um, uh, to foxes and cats. So in that sense, it is the sort of obvious thing. Um, and then it becomes more where those species lived and the level of um, habitat disturbance, if you like, that, that changed uh, the, the escape routes or the, the, the shelter and the refuge that might have been present in a landscape for, for those species. So we saw, we've seen a massive decline and, and disruption of the mammal fauna through central Australia. Um, most of or a lot of these high, um, extremely susceptible species were prevalent in central Australia but with, um, you mightn't think it because it has such a low population density um, but you know, completely changed grazing regimes, completely changed fire regimes through much of that um, has opened up a lot of that habitat and made the hunting efficiency of things like cats and foxes much more efficient and yeah these, these Many of these species didn't evolve with a superior placental um, predator. Uh, dingoes came along, you know, well, debatable, but, you know, 5,000 years ago, um, and they have exerted some sort of pressure, but they tend to prefer carrion or larger prey, bigger wallabies and kangaroos, mm. and so didn't necessarily exert that predation pressure on these smaller uh, mammals. Um, so, yeah, there is a level of naivety and um, uh, amongst this group of species that... Um, that have been really hard hit and many yeah. of them are now extinct or extinct from the mainland and thankfully some of them uh, naturally existed on on offshore islands or very early conservation efforts you know starting as early as the 1960s started to see what was happening and transferred them translocated them onto uh, these uh, feral predator free offshore islands and that's that's the only place that they've uh, persisted that's really interesting, Jim. It's Dr. Linden here. I've got a, it's a bit of a strange question, but I was thinking about foxes and cats and whether they might actually act as predators against each other. Do they, when places where they coexist, are they sort of in, enemies or are they kind of in cahoots when it comes to fighting? No, it's a really critical question and, and, and it, we learnt the hard way. Um, foxes do exert some uh, suppression on cats, um, much the way dingoes do on both foxes and cats as well. So often we might come into a landscape um, and do a really good job of taking the foxes out of the landscape because they're more 
uh, likely to take baits, so broad-scale uh, baiting regimes, either aerial or land-based, um, can actually knock your fox population down to virtually nothing or in some cases zero through a really intensive baiting program complemented with hunting and trapping and those sorts of means. But what we've <laughs> we found by uh, found when that occurs, you often then get the cats coming in and replacing them, um, so filling that niche that the foxes have left. So in Western Australia, there was a really successful um, ARC program that basically knocked cats, uh, sorry, knocked foxes out of the landscape. We saw recovery in things like brush-tailed betongs or, or woilies and um, numbats and things like this, so these species that we're talking about, and they those numbers increased rapidly in response to the to the foxes being taken out of the landscape, but then cats came in mm. and increased and, and basically knocked them right back down again, if not to worse, the yeah. situation they're in. And it's a really interesting situation in Tasmania at the moment with the, the, uh, the facial uh, tumour disease that's knocked the Tassie devils out. Now, there's no foxes in Tasmania, but what we're actually seeing is an increase in cats feral cats in Tasmania as they're filling the niche that, that was being occupied by, by devils and the, and the suppression that devils used to exert on cats. Jeez, Jim, it's a, it's a complex scenario. Whenever you have these introduced species, it, uh, they just don't fit in with the damn ecosystem that they move into. Thanks, um, thanks so much for chatting to us about this. Good luck with the ongoing work because I think um, the more we can... I'm, I'm a big fan of just stoking up more dingoes and getting them onto the job and killing off these, fo- these foxes and cats with our, with our main apex predator. Uh, good luck with the work. Thanks so much for the chat yeah. and um, we, will, uh, we will keep uh, posted on this one. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, thanks, Jim. It's Dr. Jim Radford, who is the Principal Research Fellow in the Research Centre for Future Landscapes in the Department of Ecology, Environment and Evolution at La Trobe University. Now, we're going to take a break for some music, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes with uh, someone I met at an event I was emceeing during the week who did a really good job of communicating some, some research on the ice. So this is going to be fun. You're listening to Triple R. We'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you're back. We're back. You're back listening to Einstein and Coco on 3 Triple R. It's one of those days where I've been drinking way too much water. I was going to say red wine the night before. No, it doesn't work Uh, that way. Uh, I don't drink red wine anymore because it gives me inflammation in my left eye. And it's lucky we actually have Dr. Holly Chinnery (laughs) in the studio. She's a senior lecturer in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Holly, we met during the week at a a competition, uh, which you did really well in. Thank you. Although you did come last. but you Uh, Yeah. yeah. Second last. Oh, second last. Get the facts right. (laughs) That was good. Um, But we... uh, we, we had you there because you were talking about the cornea and the immune um, system around that and how that works. One of the things I was reflecting on just as I was reading your, your information is I once had a test that involved a slight corneal scrape to get some cells. I mean, the pain that you feel there, I, you, it, it's, it's surprising to me just how sensitive the cornea is. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me um, because the cornea has the highest number of uh, nerve endings. Right compared to any other tissue in the body. So that's entirely appropriate that it would have hurt yeah, you. Yeah. So sorry about that. The cornea being the back of the... No, the front of the eye. Okay, the so we eye. should start... <laughs> let's get started on describing yeah, yeah. what this tissue is first. So it's the clear dome-shaped tissue at the front of your eye. Uh, and it's a little bit like the windshield of your car. So mm. we know that light has to pass through the eye, has to pass through the cornea first, then it has to go through the lens where it gets focused on the, the cells at the back of the eye, which are called the retina. 
retina. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people would argue the retina is the most important part of the eye, but us being the advocates for yeah. the, the front of the eye, we believe that your retina is useless if your cornea is diseased or yeah. or dirty in some way. So yeah. And, and, and I, as I, I have some recollection of this from when I was you know, an optical physicist and I knew something about light. Oh, yeah. Um, but <laughs> the idea that, you know, we often think that the lens does most of the work. But my, my recollection was that the cornea does most of the work and the lens does the fine tuning. That's is that, right. Is that yeah, right? That's yeah. true. So the cornea has about 80% of the refractive or bending yeah. power of light that enters the eye and the lens is obviously extremely important too uh, but the cornea has as the majority of that responsibility mm. so it's mm. really important mm. yeah. so if someone gets a cataract that grows on the cornea and they they remove that or is that part of the lens no the cataract is purely involving the lens only so that's a completely different piece of tissue that sits about a, a millimetre behind the cornea. Mm. So, so what sort of things go wrong with the cornea? So there are a range of corneal diseases that can occur that can lead to the ultimate problem, which is uh, loss of transparency. So the cornea, um, some typical diseases include things such as infections, and we call that keratitis. Yep. Uh, so that's um, obviously quite bad. If it goes too long, it can cause scarring, and it can also cause blood vessels to grow into the cornea. Oh, wow. Yeah. And are these diseases, they kind of happen independently or can you get some cornea issues associated with other diseases in the body? Yes, you can. So there are some systemic diseases that we now know cause corneal problems and a a classical one at the moment is diabetes. So diabetes, as we all know, is on the rise uh, and sometimes patients who have diabetes for a long enough time, they start to get damaged to the cornea and in particular, one of the first things that gets damaged are the sensory nerves. Mm. So these nerve terminals that sense pain in the cornea, they start to die off quicker wow. in diabetic patients yeah. now uh, one of the things that was um in the material that we you, you spoke about during the week at this event um was around the idea of just how the immune response works in the cornea relative to other parts of the eye and the body mm. and that, that the number of cells that do that is low very low i mean why is that it se- seems to me as though it's, it's exposed crazy. to the world you'd expect it to be even more you That's know right. stoked up That's right. So if you imagine just scratching the skin on your hand for a Mm. minute or you get like a little paper cut and it goes red, a little bit inflamed. Mm. Uh, So obviously we don't want that to happen in the cornea because that will interfere your ability to see. So we think that the cornea has this relative kind of uh, reduced immune response or a surveillance uh, so that it doesn't overreact to everyday challenges. Uh, But in saying that, we believe that the population of immune cells that are present there do a really good job at mm. immune surveillance. Okay. Um, and unlike other tissues in the body, the cornea has a relative uh, low number of these cells. Uh, and we believe that there's one particular type of cell that does most of the work in, in sensing any danger or in generating any inflammatory responses in this tissue. So that's interesting to me that these cells are so good, like, and there's a few of them. And I have a question, maybe there's no answer to this, but mm-hmm. do people get cancer of the cornea? Um. Is that possible? So I'm, I haven't, I'm not really sure that that's a big issue. They get cancer in other parts of the eye, yeah. but yeah. not particularly the cornea. Cornea. So the cornea can absorb a lot of the UV, um, and so that's mm. not 
really a big issue. I think you can get cancer definitely in the bits next to the cornea, though, right, right. in the white part of your eye called the sclera, and also deeper in the eye as well. Yeah, just it's always fascinating to me that cancer is when you, you know, Dr. Lauren knows more about this than me, but you know, when the immune system is is fail you know we all get cancer all the time and our immune system manages that and then you get to a point where that management fails and you end up with what we call cancer and and yet in the in the cornea we never get that yeah you know, it's um and it's exposed to uv all the time yeah it is. Yeah. yeah it's interesting hmm. Dr. now holly we were just talking about off air before i assume that you examine the cornea by looking at lots of <laughs> corneas but sure. you also mentioned that you use mice in this study Yes, so I should have said first up, uh, I'm in the Department of Optometry, but I'm not an optometrist, so mm. I don't see humans and I don't deal with patients. Uh, so I'm a, a basic scientist and my main patient group is mice. Uh, so we use mice, um, we use transgenic or genetically modified mice, which I know you've all have a bit of an understanding because you were talking about CRISPR earlier today. Mm. Um, so we use uh, a couple of ma- uh, transgenic mice. One of them is called a knockout mouse, and it's got nothing to do with a boxing um, <laughs> ring at all. But we uh, these mice have a specific protein that's been deleted from the animal, and when we take out that particular protein, just one protein out of the multitude of proteins, as you know, in the body, it stops the immune cells that we're interested in from making their way into the cornea. So we know that that's an important protein to get those cells in. Mm. And it's a little bit like the CCR5, uh, except it's a bit more of a a tongue twister. It's called CX3CR1. Uh, And so we... You work on those two? So, I know. I'm jumping up and down over here because yeah. I don't want to get too heavy into the immunology, but I'm like, what's the receptor? Okay, yes, it's, re- it's CX3. Settle, settle down just a little. Yeah. <laughs> and, on, and on what immune cells? Dendritic cells, yeah. Yeah, yeah so they're, they're our chief immune cell that we it's spend. A stellar immune type. It's a beautiful cell. It really yeah. is, yeah. yeah. So we spend a lot of our time looking at dendritic cells in these knockout mice in corneas where there aren't any dendritic cells spontaneously. So we can uh, have a really nice way of trying to address the function of these cells in the normal and the diseased cornea. Mm. And are you looking at the interactions of those dendritic cells with the nerves? Absolutely, yeah. So we know that these dendritic cells, uh, they are suspended in this really dense, complex nerve plexus, which is found in the cornea, uh, and they physically interact and they touch these nerve endings and these nerve axons. Uh, And so we think that they're a bit like spiders sitting in a spider web. So, you know, a spider sitting there touching... using its legs to touch as many components of the web so that whenever it senses danger or a threat, it can respond. And so the, we think the dendritic cells are behaving like that in the cornea so that if we trigger or cause any damage or a, a threat to the tissue, those dendritic cells are the first cells to respond and try to either alert the immune system or maybe dampen things down and, and just kind of say, settle down, let's not cause a full-blown mm. response here. There, there are obviously big differences between the human eye and the eyes in other species and one of the difficulties in research over the years especially the retina is that our retina is pretty special and there's only a few animals that have you know three three color sensing um is is that different for the cornea is the cornea a pretty common sort of material or is it different as different between species so it's in if we compare the mouse cornea to the human cornea uh there are a lot of similarities one of the major differences is 
probably the the size and thickness right, and i mean yeah. relative thicknesses as well mm-hmm. so we do know that in the mouse epithelium which is the most outer layer of the cornea where all of these nerves are located in this high number it's a bit thicker in mice so you could argue that they perhaps have a more developed sensory mm. system here whereas in humans it's a lot smaller relative to the full thickness of the cornea mm. in terms of the immune cell population and characteristics they are quite similar both of them have this chief kind of similarity which is that the only cells present in that outer surface layer are the dendritic cells uh, and again the patterns of their distribution and interrelationship with the nerves are very similar yeah uh, dr ray i was just thinking more about the immune response in the eye not knowing that much about any biology but <laughs> the immune response in the body often brings white blood cells a, a cascade of events sure in the eye particularly in the cornea is part of it actually just triggering a lot more tearing or fluid release things to flush yes yeah, so opposed? that's that's part of what we call the innate immune system so we have two major parts of the immune system the innate which is that immediate kind of non-specific reaction and then we have the adaptive or acquired immune system and that takes a few more days to really get ramped up and it's a bit more it's far more complex um so tearing is one of the first mechanisms by which we try to flush out any danger signals so we can all relate to having an eyelash or a bit of sand or dust fly into your eye and how irritating that is that's because the sensory nerve terminals are firing the dendritic cells are probably getting activated but before all of that happens we start secreting extra tears to flush away any of those microbes or Mm. or danger components to try Mm. and you know um a little while back i sent to a colleague of mine at a certain institute that does research on eyes which i won't name uh a comment that their their um their logo should say you know health of the eye and the eye for health because the eye is the only Mm. place where you can visibly look into the body and see blood cells like all this stuff Uh, how i mean how much extra can we learn from that you think i mean this is partly what you're doing but like it it seems to just open up you know for cardiac patients for everything it's like every time someone walks into a hospital we should examine their retina yeah that's right well the cornea is one of the we think i think the most powerful tissues because you can bring a patient in off the street within five minutes put an eye drop in the eye just to Mm. stop them blinking sit them down in front of a microscope and you can immediately start looking at their sensory nerves so this is part of the peripheral Mm. nervous system you can start looking at these dendritic cells in real time you can just see them right up it's just the the resolution is powerful and amazing Uh, and this technology has been around for probably 20 or 30 years now and i I, every single year more and more papers come out now that clinicians have access to this tool uh, we're starting to learn more and more how uh, the sensory nerves and the dendritic cells are kind of like indicators or biomarkers of other systemic diseases yeah. so the diabetes story that came out you know 10 or 20 years ago so now clinicians are using um, the cornea as a way of predicting what patients are going to go on to develop more sensory nerve loss or pathology mm. so extremely powerful we're really i'm really lucky that i get to work on a tissue that we can translate these sorts of um immune and neuroscience questions from patients into the mice yeah and there's work going on at the moment that i know that um essentially all but uses people's phones to take take data and you know and collect data on 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 people's eyes i mean you you don't need an ophthalmoscope to do some of this work you can you can monitor people's health with relatively simple easy to use stuff there there are a range of apps that are coming out now to try and 
Jesus. Very, it's very cool. We get excited here, Holly. Um, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Good luck no with problem. the ongoing work. Thank and, you. Yeah, it's and for anyone great. out there, try not to scratch your cornea because there are a lot of bloody nerve cells in there and hurts <laughs> like hell. <laughs> Dr. Holly Chinnery is a senior lecturer in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Thank We're you. We're going to take a short break for some station announcements and we'll be back with a little bit more news uh, to end the show with. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to Triple R. This is Einstein Gogo. We've got about eight minutes to go, and we thought we'd uh, just mention a little bit more news that's been in the week. It's not all CRISPR. There's other things going on, isn't there, Dr. Linden? That's right. Not You're all excited. CRISPR. Well, I, I am. Sometimes, you know, we have this show and we think, oh, what, can, what science can I talk about this week? And, then other, and it's a bit of a struggle. And other weeks you think, goodness gracious me, we need two hours to talk about yeah. all of the science that's happened this week. Because, of course, earlier in the week... We landed a bloody another rover on Mars. Yeah, although this one doesn't rove. Oh, a, a plonker? <laughs> what does it do? It just sits. <laughs> yeah, it just sits. It doesn't move. <laughs> yeah, though no, we did the insight, the insight probe, which is um, pretty cool because uh, this this one is designed to look at basically not so much the surface of Mars, but what's underneath it. So it's it's going to take measurements. It, it drills. It drills. Yes, and, it, and uh, excellent it, infographics about yeah. the drilling. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it's got a seismometer. It's, yeah. it's the, isn't this, this is the second planet where humans are finally measuring earthquakes? Earthquakes, yeah. Or Marsquakes. Earthquakes and um, impacts. Marsquakes. Mars yeah. Marsquakes. So, they're Marsquakes. So, I mean, uh, just to remind people, landing on Mars is non trivial. So, so, the US is the only country that's successfully done this. There's been many attempts, but the US, I think this is their eighth successful landing. Um, but no other country's managed to land successfully on Mars. So, what's the, what's the success rate for, this, for the US? It's eight out of 10, 12? I'm not sure how many of, if any of the US ones have felt actually, but okay. um, yeah. Well, no, no, there was the one with the units conversion. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's one, yeah. like nine and eight successful. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's damn hard because, I mean, the thing to remember, you know, when, whenever you watch a you know, re-entry on Earth of, you know, the Soyuz capsule or whatever else, you, the first thing you see is that parachute being deployed. And that's because we've got a nice, big, juicy, thick atmosphere, whereas Mars does not have that. They have a very thin atmosphere, so parachutes basically don't slow you down very much. And when you're coming in at something like, you know, fifteen to 20,000 kilometres per hour, you need to slow down pretty and, pretty substantially. And given the uh, the mission for this, where it landed really mattered. It had to be soft. It had to be a place they could drill. It had to be flat because mm. it's it's doing temperature. It's it's doing a thermal probe. It's doing seismometer. But it's also looking at the wobble of Mars as it orbits. So it had to land within a fifteen degree angle. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. Yeah, and, and it had at, to be close to the equator so yeah. it would get enough energy from the yeah. solar. Uh, arrays. Oh, mm. and, and so they're like at four degrees. The solar arrays are really cool. This is apparently, this lander is generated more power by than any other of its pre- previous Mars landers, and it's about 450 times more energy than the original Pathfinder rover. Because hmm. Break it down for me. How big is this probe? Could the mo- rover run over it, and how long is it meant to stay there? They have, they have <laughs> yeah. really big solar panels on this. Yeah, this they? one's got really big solar panels. Yeah. So, well, uh, how big is really big, though? Seven m- meters. Okay. Yeah. okay. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, like Pathfinder, you could trip over. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty tiny. <laughs> yeah, it was tiny. Um, but uh, Curiosity and was was probably the most recent. It was the second largest yeah, one. Yeah, it's kind of the size of a little bug. Not a bug, you know, a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But, um, but it's interesting that uh, coming back to the, the 15 degree thing, I mean, I, I think you, you sort of got to get your head around this. I mean, if you think of the corner, a corner in every, any room is 90 degrees. So half of that corner, like just divide this up, is 45. 
half of that is 22 and a half so now you've you're really getting to a pretty small angle and they managed to land it with four degrees so, yeah, four degrees off you know, perfectly so you, you, level. You, you think about that, and if it was any more than fifteen degrees, so thinking, you know, going down from from ninety to forty five to twenty two to what um, my mass is getting squirrely now about eleven, you know, much more than that when you've divided that angle up by four times, and and this this billion dollar mission is just done. Um, they did pretty well, but yeah, they didn't well. exactly land it where they were hoping to. They were yeah. hoping to land it in oh, it's got a beautiful name, the Alicia Plantilla. Plantia. It's a real yep. flat space that they had yep. found, and they kind of missed that slightly and landed in a small yeah, crater. crater. Yep. Yeah. So now they're going, they're on a couple of rocks. Is that right? Will the rover? Will the Insight be able to? Well, there's, there's, those there's rocks out ne- of the way? nearby. Nearby, there's a few small rocks they saw in the imaging. But what what will happen in the next few days is they will. So all the all the major cameras on this um, on this particular um, instrument have uh, still got dust covers on them because you know when you do this sort of landing, remember it's done with rocketry. So it's not just parachutes. You're actually using rockets to slow yourself down and land. And so that that churns up a lot of crap off the Martian surface. So you want to make sure your nice, you know, high-resolution cameras are still covered at that point. So they'll lose those covers in the next couple of days, I think by t- tomorrow yeah. or Tuesday, and then and then, then they'll be able to survey exactly yeah. what, what's around them. But they're, they're using a robotic arm to actually set up the seismometers on the mm. Martian surface, and the yeah. same with the probe that they're for the thermal probe they're going to drill yeah. into Mars. Yeah. So, so how long is the mission then? It's a year two, and yeah. a month. Yeah, yeah. So, and in, in Martian souls, it's about two years. Two years, yeah. years yeah. Two Earth years. Two Earth years. Yeah, one Martian year. So, the interesting thing that with this um, particular mission too is it's the first time NASA have used some of these smaller CubeSat type devices. So, there are a couple of smaller bits that went along for the ride. MarCOA and MarCOB. Yeah, and they, these were used to communicate information back. Um, to Earth whilst it was en route and, and, and during the landing sequence. But they're those little, you know, we hear a lot about these little CubeSats and things, these little tiny ones. So rather than something, you know, um, big like Odyssey or any of the other large orbiting craft around Mars, um, these are really small ones. So, they, so they, they're, they're done. They've done their job. They're, um, you know, they're so here's a question. The rover is still roving around. Mm, yeah. No? Yeah. The yes. Curiosity yeah, yeah, Rover. Curiosity yeah, yeah, yeah. Rover. Is it, yeah. He's in the news right now. He found yeah. something shiny on Mars. Ah. Yeah. Just happened. Trying there to get you go. Nose. Is there, wildly speculatory, is there a chance that the Curiosity could rove on over? Well, that's what I was thinking. Could what? the Curiosity rover rove uh, over the inside uh, probe? No, I'm no, not roll <laughs> over, but like pop over and take a photo yeah, and take it out. Well, no, I don't think they're anywhere near each other. No, oh, yeah, come on. Which is, and, and Mars is, like, it's not a big planet. Mars, I always say Mars Couldn't help it out the small, crater, but, no? you know, Mars is not a huge planet, but it's, it's still a planet. Like, yeah. they're still uh, big. So. But in the map, the, the NASA map that they have where they've got all the eight uh, crafts mm. that they managed to land, it's not... It's yeah, not yeah. a spherical picture. They're kind of in the same oh, block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're, I'd watch that movie. That's all I'm oh, saying. You yeah, the if movie. that was to happen, yeah, I'd <laughs> watch that. Yeah, that'd be funny. Now, we've got like uh, 30 seconds to go. I wanted you to quickly tell us about what's happening in the toilets on the International Space Station. It's the start of a horror movie. They found new new strains of drug resistant bacteria from the toilets in the International Space Station. What have they been feeding the astronauts? <laughs> Wait, so a brand new... A new, new strains. They're types new. of enterobacteria, but they're drug-resistant. They're not pathogenic yet, but the, the NASA scientists estimate there's a 79% of them becoming... Yeah, pathogenic meaning they don't infect humans. Didn't yeah, but, Netflix make so, this they're movie? Gonna. They're going to. They're going to. I mean, what, how, does, how does the conditions of the space station affect the bacteria? How does microgravity, yeah. radiation... Where did the things. bacteria come from? 
I think the humans. Uh, the no. But okay. we have sent them up into space. <laughs> Speaking of the Mars rover, just for a second, we sent bacteria up there. It was recovered off the surface of one yeah. of the Mars rovers. Yeah. We're polluting another planet already. Is that yeah. what I'm hearing? Well, and that's especially problematic when one of the biggest questions is whether or not it's ever harbored life. Yeah. So that... Yeah, that's, so, what that's are we doing? so what are we doing? Anyway, uh, on that uh, beautiful toiletry note, uh, Dr. Laura, that's why we bring you in, because you, you know, bring us all the shit stories. Um, <laughs> I was going to say elevate the content, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Einstein, the go-go folks. Uh, Dr. Linda, Dr. Ray, Dr. Laura, thank you very much for coming in. And Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Uh, thanks to our guests for today. I'm Dr. Shane. It's great to be broadcasting science to you every week. We have two weeks to go before the end of the year, so we're going to bring you some really cool stuff between now and then. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. See you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.